Let's open our Bibles now to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and tonight we'll consider verses 6 through 9. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. As I was um, considering Mrs. Graham just a little while ago, thinking about a life, I believe she was 86, 87 years old on Sunday, and um, how you would come to the end of that and what you might say to people what in most of the time, uh, at least all the time I've heard, with the exception of some of these criminals that are just trying to make a joke, whatever you say at the end is, is really something that's special to you, very important to you. I don't know what she told her family before she went into that coma, but I do know what the Apostle Paul told Timothy not too long before he was to be executed. Let's don't forget that Second Timothy, the words of Second Timothy are Paul's last words, at least his last written words. And we should take them very seriously as we do all of Scripture. And particularly these, these portions where he encourages his young associate, his young partner in the faith, his young partner in ministry, Timothy. And then in chapter 2, as he concluded that chapter, he instructed Timothy not to be quarrelsome, but to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Given the fact that there will always, there will always be conflicts in the local church. This will not be an easy task. A pastor's not a robot. Timothy wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a pastor. He was an apostolic representative to several pastors. But given the fact that there's always conflicts, given the fact that you're dealing with people, people with all sin natures, and none of us achieve perfection this side of heaven, there will always be conflicts. Anybody that thinks that that's not a true statement has never been in ministry. Or has been in ministry so short a time you hadn't had a chance to experience yet. Experience it yet, but by and large, local churches are populated by good people. Many of whom have differing views on how things should be done. I'm aware of that. Um, all of whom, though, have old sin natures, just like I do. And just like others in leadership do. But in addition to the good people that populate local churches... And by good, I mean everything is relative as, as to good compared to God. But we're talking about good, righteous people, righteous positionally, and those who um, are, by and large, walking in fellowship with God. In addition to those kind of people in a local church, there are also those who are unrighteous. Either unrighteous positionally, meaning unbelievers, or unrighteous experientially, meaning unbelievers who are consistently walking out of fellowship are believers, rather, who are consistently walking out of fellowship. Now, I'm not speaking of, of believers who are, who are by and large walking in fellowship. I'm talking about believers who by and large are not walking in fellowship. So in any given local church, you've got all different kinds of people. You've got people that are seriously mature believers. You have people that are antagonistic unbelievers. Every, the whole spectrum, if, if a church is of any size at all, you're going to find people of the whole spectrum, from from antagonistic unbeliever to seriously mature believer. So when Paul gives these 19 characteristics that will mark the last days, in other words, uh, the church age, the last days does not mean the, the final few ticks before the rapture. That's not what it means here, because Paul considers he and Timothy both to be in the last days as he writes this. But when he gives these characteristics... He's speaking of believers who are walking out of fellowship with God, as well as the few who are associated with the churches in Ephesus who are very well, very likely not saved at all. 
it's an error to look at this list of vices that we studied last time that we'll review quickly this time and just see unbelievers there. If you look at that list and all you see is an unbeliever, so that you, so you assume that these have to be unbelievers because of the list, you're living in, in this unreal world as Paris Hilton is living in. Because believers can and do commit all of these sins. People who go to church consistently can and do commit all of these sins. So this, you can't look at the list and say, because, because of the heinousness of these vices, it must be an unbeliever. No, in fact, the context is more heavily weighted to believers who are walking out of fellowship. And then also the false teachers who we understand are unbelievers. Again, the phrase the last days does not refer strictly to the last few days before the rapture of the church. Here it refers to the entirety of the church age. This is going to be the norm for the entirety of the church age. It's taken me a while to figure that out too. So if you have a little problem with this, I don't blame you. Because sometimes we live in unreality as well. You think, you think sometimes that a church will grow to a point where everybody gets along. Where there's fellowship amongst all believers. And that's not going to happen. Not this side of heaven. In heaven we'll have fellowship. That'll be one of the greatest things about heaven. We'll have unbroken worship with, with our fellow believers who, with whom we also have unbroken fellowship. But because it's a reality, Paul has to warn Timothy. Because if Timothy starts getting unrealistic expectations about the ministry, he's liable to just pack it up and quit. And Paul doesn't want him to do that. So he says, it's a reality that these things are going to happen. Now get with it, Timothy. Now you know what's going to happen. Put your shoulder to the wind. Keep your focus upon me. And let's get with it. In the last days, individuals within the local church, that's the context, would be... Now remember, these can either be believers walking out of fellowship with God, either temporarily or consistently, or they can be unbelievers. These, these individuals will be self-centered and narcissistic. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be boastful of their own importance. And I'm going to tell you, that's one of the things that will drive a church down quickly, is if you have a maximum number of people in any local church that are really enamored with their own self-importance. Because then everything's got to be about them. Everything's got to be about them. And this is going to be a reality. So Paul tells Timothy, there are going to be people in the local churches always, throughout the whole history of the church age, up to the present time, there will always be people in any local church that are boastful of their own importance, that are proud, arrogant in attitude, that are unfortunately abusive toward others, that are unresponsive to parental discipline. What church is going to have 100% good kids? I mean, not, not, what I mean by good kids is kids who are obedient and honoring their parents. It's not going to happen. In fact, any child can be said to be unresponsive to parental discipline at one time or another. The seventh characteristic of the 19th that he brings up is ungrateful, unthankful, and unappreciative. And this, sadly, is another thing that kills churches. It, it, you see, these things actually go together. That goes with being self-centered. That goes with being boastful of one's own self-importance. Because if you're real, if you're real hung up on your own self-importance, if somebody does something for you, you're going to figure you got it coming, right? And so you're not going to be grateful. And with gratitude actually goes humility, and that's something that gets thrown out the window too. The eighth characteristic is impure or unholy. And then in verse three, furthermore, they will be heartless, callous, hateful. This, this is kind of a rough list, isn't it? 
thinking it's describing us, all of us. Any of us can get, any of us can slip into these sins at any time. And as soon as we think we can't, you better take heed because as soon as you think you can't do it, you're going to fall. And it's going to be in the very category that you think you can never fall in. Heartless, callous, hateful, unforgiving, and consequently irreconcilable. I said on Sunday morning, I want to remind you again, it probably won't be the last time I say it, that when we gather together for worship, if you're not in fellowship with one another, you cannot be in fellowship with God. If you harbor animosity or hatred toward one of the people that's sitting in the room with you, you are not going to be able to be in fellowship with God. That's a principle of Scripture. On the other hand, if you're in fellowship with God, or if you're not in fellowship with God, you also will not be in fellowship with your fellow believer, even if you think that you are. It takes both vertical fellowship and horizontal fellowship. You need to first be in fellowship with God, and then you need to make sure you're in fellowship with a fellow believer. Maybe somebody in this church has offended you. Maybe they've offended you and made you mad. Well, join a club. I mean, that, that's just that's part of what happens. And get over it and forgive them, yes, even if they don't ask for it. Because the scriptures say, as far as it's up to you, live at peace with all men. You can't, you can't make peace with everybody because some people won't make peace with you. But as far as it's up to you, you need to do it. And then you, then at least you're going to be worshiping. They may not be. But at least you will be. Families and churches can have the, the most emotional arguments of anybody I've ever seen. You, you can hardly ever get as mad as you will, will as somebody within your family. And you'll hardly ever get as mad as somebody as you will that's within your church. And this is not right. You're walking out of fellowship when you're unforgiving and irreconcilable with other people. I know that's not easy because when people wrong you, it's, it had to be something pretty special or you wouldn't feel offended in the first place. And here, here Bruce is asking you to set it aside so that we can worship well. Now, actually not. I'm not asking you to set aside so that you can worship well. Jesus Christ is the one that said, if you don't forgive others, you're not forgiven. And that is a principle of Scripture as well. So when you're harboring animosity toward a fellow believer, or toward anybody actually, but, but, but your fellowship with God is not going to be there either, and you may as well stay home. I don't want to challenge too many of you with it. You may have four or five people there next week. <laughs> I may have to stay home, you know. Some days I'd like to stay home too, you know, if, if, if that's what, if that was the truth. And especially if you, let me just ask you this. This is a good, good as night as any to do it. If you have a serious complaint, it's better for everybody if you don't make it five minutes before the service starts. Because, because sometimes my buttons can get pushed and then I'll get out of fellowship right before the service. And, and when that happens, uh, it's it's a challenge. So if you got a serious complaint, why don't you do me a favor? Make it on Monday. That way I've got the whole week. You know, shoot me. I get those emails anyway. You know, I, I, the first thing I do is sit down at the desk, go over all the emails, and and that at least gives me the rest of the week to get ready before at least or before Wednesday or Sunday. Kind of joking, but about three quarters serious with that too. <laughs> Slanderous of others, lacking in self control, brutal, brutish, uncivilized antagonistic toward whatever is good. Yes, this can describe a believer, but only a believer walking out of fellowship. You won't, you won't be having a problem with these if you're walking in fellowship with God. And then finally, verse, uh, or almost finally, verse 3, they would be disposed toward betrayal, treacherous. I want to make this clear too. Your loyalty, your ultimate loyalty should be to Jesus Christ. 
Now, if your loyalty is to Jesus Christ, then there will be overflow loyalty as well to those who have ministered to you and to those who have treated you well. But if your loyalty is primarily to the minister and not to the Lord, then that loyalty is going to fall apart anyway. It's going to be false loyalty and we'll end up having bad application. So ultimately, the loyalty should be directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. If it is, then your relationship with those who minister to you will fall right in line. You'll have no problem at all. The 16th characteristic is headstrong and then therefore reckless. 17th is conceited, puffed up with pride, wrapped in the mist of self-delusion. You see how many times Paul kind of returns to almost the same thing, but he's using Greek, different Greek words when he does it. This whole idea of self-centeredness will kill a church. 18th, devoted to personal pleasure rather than to God. And then finally, and this is one of the interesting things, they would make a pretense of being religious or spiritual. See, they, they would have these first 18 or one or more of them, all the while prancing around like their little Miss Spirituality or little Sir Spirituality. And I don't know who we think we're fooling because God sees right through the veneer into what's in the heart. So at the same time they are committing these sins, they make a pretense of being religious or spiritual, but at the same time deny the true source of spiritual power, which is God's word and God himself. Timothy was to avoid such people as these. At least he was to avoid them except to minister to them and to try to get them back into a fellowship with God. But remember where this started. Paul is encouraging Timothy at the end of chapter 2 not to be quarrelsome, to be kind, to be able to teach, to be patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's going to be easier to do if you go into it with your eyes wide open and realize that every time you deal with them, Timothy, there's going to be somebody there that's likely walking out of fellowship. So don't be shocked when it happens, and then you'll go into it with realistic expectations. You'll be able to handle it. It's not going to be easy, an easy task. Timothy must keep his focus on his master and not on the troublemakers. Anybody in any ministry has got to keep their focus on the master. Anybody in any relationship has got to keep their focus on the master and not on the trouble itself. It doesn't mean you ignore the trouble. It doesn't mean you don't care about the troublemaker. But if you're looking at the troublemaker through the lens of the master, then it'll be a lot easier to handle. That's what he's doing here. Now, Paul in verse 6 says, For some of these, now the some of these is a subset of those who are the troublemakers in a church. And remember, I've already said the troublemakers could either be people who are unbelievers or people who are believers who are walking out of fellowship. Some of these, a subset of these, some of these are creeping into the homes and captivating or capturing weak women who are weighed down by various impulses. Actually, verses 6 through 9 is the second paragraph of this section. We studied the first paragraph last time. Having listed 19 sins that were and will continue to be present in the Ephesian churches, Paul now turns to a subset of the whole and centers on the false teachers captivating weak women. So he's not talking about not necessarily just believers who are walking out of fellowship. Now, he's shifted to a subset 
of this larger group who are walking out of fellowship and is focusing in on false teachers who are most likely the unbelievers in the crowd. They don't have to be. A false teacher can be somebody just walking out of fellowship with God. But he's shifted focus ever so subtly here. When it says that they are creeping into the homes or into houses, this could be uh, an oblique reference to the local church as the early local church met in homes. In fact, it's not until the time of Constantine that we have archaeological, uh, or that we've, archaeological excavations have shown that in the time of Constantine is when, when church buildings really came into vogue. Before that, individuals met in homes. So it could be a reference to, uh, to the church itself. Most likely here, though, I think it probably is the individual's home. The phrase here, for among them are those who enter into households. Again, those are most likely the false teachers, unbelievers, and captivate weak women. Um, I ask for objectivity on the part of the ladies tonight. The men have caught theirs. Ladies, you're not going to like this part, but especially this this first term. This term for weak women is sometimes translated in other Bibles, silly, or other translations, silly. This is a translation of a word, Greek word that means an adult woman of foolish and or frivolous, perhaps even silly character. It's not a flattering term, in case you were wondering. This, this, is, this is purposeful on the part of the Apostle Paul, and then he explains it a bit later, but before he does, let me say this. All believers, male and female, need to be constantly on guard for false teachers and for false teaching. But here... Paul focuses on the female who is not focused upon her Lord, but rather on herself. It appears that the women in view, the weak or silly or frivolous women in view, are guilty of many, if not most of the sins mentioned in the preceding paragraph. So Paul is not speaking to you specifically. He's not indicating that that, uh, all women are weak women. He's talking in this passage about women who are, and now he says it, weighed down with sins. And the sins, most specifically, are among those in the 19 that he's just mentioned. And then following that, led on by various impulses. But when anybody shifts their, when anybody shifts their focus away from God and onto self, they are vulnerable to false theology. But again, here the women are going to take center stage. Let me at least make these two points. By nature, women are more trusting than men. By nature, and generally, there are exceptions, but by nature, women are more trusting than men. And that can be a good thing, provided that that trust is tempered with wisdom. But without wisdom, trust becomes a weakness. I think that's why God's design is that women are given husbands, fathers, brothers, sons, or even good friends in the majority of cases to balance out this trusting nature that that ladies have. I don't imply at all that men are going to provide wisdom in every case, but sometimes we provide more than we're given credit for. (laughs) Also, by nature, women are, just by nature, they're maternal in their outlook, and they seek to find the good in people rather than the negatives especially if someone is actively 
pointing out the negatives in another person. Often women will automatically take the other side. As soon as they see someone's character being maligned, they'll just by nature, they'll take the other side and defend the false teacher, in this case, who's being criticized in an effort to balance the whole thing out. That's just part of a woman's nature. And that can be great in some cases. But not all the time. Remember that the vulnerable woman is the one who is weighed down with sin and led on by various impulses. Here's the second unflattering term. This, this term that's translated various impulses is also not flattering, and in the context means sinful, passionate desires as opposed to legitimate passion. I want you also to remember something. Those who are false teachers are not going to come in acting like jerks, not typically. Someone who is a bona fide false teacher is going to come in to the assembly or come into your home and do the false teaching with gentleness, with friendliness, and probably with a big fat smile on their face. Maybe the whole time they're false teaching. I don't know. But they're not going to come in looking like the Antichrist. You can't fool anybody looking like the Antichrist. They're going to come in looking like an angel of light. It's very important to remember. So, women, the first thing you need to do is not be weighed down by sin. You need to be walking in fellowship with God, and that verse doesn't apply to you. So anybody gets really bent out of shape, then you're just telling me that that verse applies to you because you're weighed down with sin and these silly impulses. So, don't do that. Walk in fellowship with God. This won't be a problem for you. But if you're walking out of fellowship with God, the example is for women, but it can happen to men too. You are vulnerable to false teaching. If, the longer you walk out of fellowship, the more vulnerable you will be to false teachers. In verse 7, he continues on, always learning and never being able to come up to a knowledge of the truth. And here is the third unflattering comment. But these are inspired by the Holy Spirit. I hope you understand that. And I think I would think that you would understand. Paul is trying to get the attention of women in the local assembly who are weighed down by these sins. And if he's got to be unflattering to do it, he's going to do it that way. But this is the third unflattering description of the women who are in view in context. They are always appearing to learn, but they never really get it. And again, before you get out of fellowship, remember he's talking about the women who are weighed down with sin. This also goes back to giving the appearance of spirituality, but denying the very power. Um, This is a serious problem. And Timothy needed to know that this would be a problem so he could work with it and so that he could deal with it. Then let's look at verse 8. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. So Paul now compares these false teachers who were, remember, creeping into women's homes. And I assume that that means doing so without the permission or even the knowledge of their husbands. That's probably the sneaky part. I think that's fair to take from verse 6. These are the ones that are sneaking into women's homes. He compares these false teachers with the two Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. All the way back in, in Exodus 7, when you remember the plagues were going on and 
Pharaoh called his magicians to try to match Moses plague for plague. If you don't recognize the names, Janice and Chambers, don't feel bad. Because those names don't appear in the Old Testament. How do we know them? Or how did Paul know them? Well, these names came down to us through oral tradition. Through tradition through the, the Hebrews over the years. And Paul knew what their names were, even though the names weren't given in Hebrew Bible. But there are two points of comparison that Paul makes. Both of these groups, those who oppose Moses, Janus and Jammers, these magicians, and the false teachers, opposed the true message. The, the Egyptian magicians opposed the message of Moses. And the false teachers are opposing the message of Paul, which is being mediated through Timothy. So that's one point of comparison. Also, the second point of comparison is just like if you remember your Old Testament history, just like the Egyptian magicians were demonstrated to be frauds in the end, and not before they, they, they had deceived many before that, but when it all washed out, the Egyptian magicians were shown to be the frauds that they were. Well, in the same way, Paul is going to say, when all is said and done, these false teachers in Ephesus will also be shown to be the false teachers that they are. Bottom line is, the truth is going to win out. Now, there can be a lot of damage in the meantime. While the truth is winning out, especially if you're walking out of fellowship, again, the context is female, but male or female, if you're consistently walking out of fellowship, there can be a lot of damage to you by false teachers. But in the end, the truth is going to win out. Again, the magicians are not named in the Old Testament, but both Jewish and even Christian tradition developed the account of Moses, and it's within that development that the names came out. It's possible that there's a third point of comparison. It's only possible, and I don't really buy it, but it's possible that just as Janice and Jambres were performing magic, uh, false miracles, but magic in order to deceive the Egyptians, so also the false teachers, some would say, were performing magic with these women. Well, I don't know that there's a, a lot of evidence for that, but I do believe, to use modern terminology, they certainly were casting a spell on the women. Perhaps not out-and-out out magic, but casting a spell. And this can be done for the false teachers that I know of, and it's probably not as many as people might think. Just because someone differs with you on a point or two of biblical doctrine doesn't mean they're a false teacher. Sometimes we, we jump over the edge of the ship a little too quickly with that. When we abandon ship, when it ought not to be abandoned, and we can come back later and be embarrassed to find out actually they were right and we were wrong. If it's a point or two of doctrine. We're talking about people who are denying the Savior who bought them, as Peter says. People who are teaching a false gospel. But they are casting some sort of spell on these silly women. He gives two descriptions in verse nine of, of uh, verses eight and nine of what's going to happen to them. Again, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. That's their problem. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards to the faith. So they have a depraved mind even though they may have a smile on their face, and that's what makes it so hard. Please, please hear me. Forgive me if it offends you, but this makes it so hard, ladies. You see somebody that's really nice, and that really carries themselves well, 
that maybe has a pretty wife, and you say, how could they be wrong? Well, you got to listen to what they say. And if you're walking in fellowship, you'll be able to spot it. But if all you're doing is looking at the exteriors, you too are going to be carried away. So I'm asking you, walk in fellowship so that the Holy Spirit would guard the gates of your soul so that you're not carried away. So the first thing we see is their rejected mind, or their their depraved mind. The second, rejected as regards to the faith. As the magicians, the false teachers, opposed God's revealed truth, they possessed corrupt minds and they were they were outside of the fold of faith. This is what would cause me to, to believe that the false teachers were unbelievers. They're outside of the fold of faith. And they would only proceed so far, just like the Egyptian predecessors did. They're only going to go so far. And then their foolishness would become common knowledge when their power proved inadequate. Despite, despite the success of the opponents on a temporary basis, Paul ends this passage on a positive note of the eventual victory of the truth. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Just like those magicians are going to be shown to be the frauds that they are, eventually false teachers will be shown to be fraudulent. Just like the magicians failed to copy Moses' miracle of the plague of gnats and failed to deal with the boils in Exodus 9, so also Timothy's opponents would eventually fail. So in verses 1 through 9, as Paul previously reminded Timothy, he now repeats that Timothy should not be surprised at the conflicts that he's experiencing. He's living in the last days, here referring to the church age. Rather than loving God, people will love themselves. And from that will flow love for the material world and the vices of self-centeredness that Paul lists in verses 2 through 5. False teachers who themselves are guilty of these sins will take advantage of that situation to spread that which is not the truth. But Timothy is not to be discouraged. Truth will win in the end. Truth properly presented and understood matures the believer and equips the faithful, as we'll see in a paragraph or two, for every good work.